Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Raya and the Last Dragon, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and as our short break in the regularly scheduled pod continues, it's my pleasure to introduce another very special bonus episode of the podcast, which is something that we've wanted to do for a very long time, and now we finally have an excuse to make it happen. As ever, I'm joined by Dr. Sam Summers. Hello, Sam. You're good? Hello, Ben. I am good. I am quite chill because I've spent a week catching up on some very relaxing movies for this podcast, for this episode. So I'm in a good place. Very, very good. As Sam has alluded to, we are not alone this week in an event that we might want to call, I don't know, the convergence or the conjunction of the spheres, maybe the animated movie podcast Reckoning. I don't get any of those references, by the way. (laughs) The conjunction of the spheres is from The Witcher, which I'm watching at the moment, which is one of the nerdiest things I've ever seen. Anyway, uh, we are joined by two of our very favourite people in podcasting who know more than their fair share of stuff about the art of cinematic animation. One of them is a cunning kid who, a few years back, had seen nary a Studio Ghibli movie in his life, and has since become a devotee to the call of Miyazaki and Takahata. It's Jake Cunningham! Hello! Hello, thanks so much for joining us. And also here is a guy who you could say is an authority, a Jedi if you will, a leader in his field, who guided Jake through the worlds of Ghibli. It's Michael Leader. Hello, Ben. Hi, Sam. <laughs> hey, guys. I mean, collectively, you go by Ghibliotech. You are the Ghibliotech podcast. Uh, and it's our pleasure to welcome you into the hallowed halls of Disneyversity. Or for this week, are we calling it, I don't know, Disneyotech? Ghibliversity? Some kind of hybrid. It feels like that scene in Shaun of the Dead where the two bunches of survivors cross each other in the path. This is very exciting. But the question is, Ben, of course, the Jessica Hines group are the smart group that are going and finally get to salvation. Whereas, of course, the Sean <laughs> group goes to the pub, which is a very bad idea in the end for them. So who are the smart ones out of the two of our pod gangs? <laughs> well, when you said the pub, I just thought, wouldn't it be lovely if we all went to the pub? So I think we might be Team Sean. Big question. I feel like we're Sean. I feel like your podcast, I don't know, it's kind of calmer. It's more measured. It comes across as more intellectual than ours, even though we are... Adversity, and you guys are only an Ortec. <laughs> well, I mean, Mike, Michael's not a drinker, really, uh, so I don't know how at home he'd oh, be in neither. the pub. So um, maybe he's Jessica Hines. That makes me Matt Lucas. Well, maybe, Jake, maybe you and I go to the pub, and, and then these guys go and have a cup of tea and wait for it all to blow up. We'll over. go to the bibliotheque. We'll go and read some. <laughs> a couple of readers over here. I've got a couple of readers. 
readers and a leader. I think in a zombie apocalypse, we would probably all be sort of first against the wall, I have to say. Uh, Our expertise is animated movies, not survival, bunkers, and all of that. But uh, anyway, enough about the zombie apocalypse. So for people who don't know, I mean, I imagine most of the people listening to this are aware of the Ghibli Attack podcast, are probably listeners, you're one of the biggest animation podcasts in the world. How did it all come about? Oh, through sheer ignorance on my part. <laughs> so it's, I spent all this time in my life watching films and trying to become a professional in the world of, of film and doing everything that I could to uh, learn about it and go to university to study it. And then a huge turning point in my life, I realized that actually not watching something could be incredibly beneficial. And that's where Michael came in. <laughs> yeah, it came up across the desk one day because we both work at the same company that Jake hadn't seen any of these films and I'm a massive nerd for these films I've been watching them since I was a teenager I've been writing about them throughout my entire sort of professional life so when it came to my ears that Jake hadn't seen any of them I sort of grabbed him by the scruff of the neck both probably literally and metaphorically and said you're coming along with me (laughs) (laughs) and um, what better way to do that than turn it into a podcast where I curate Jake's journey through I would say, I think I can say this on this podcast and maybe cause a bit of controversy up top, uh, the oeuvre of the greatest animation studio there's ever been. Oh, throw down. It's a big one to start with. I was thinking about this the other day, and if we're going film for film, Ghibli beats Disney easy, right? How many mm-hmm. Ghibli what? films? Sam, what are you no, no, come about? on, Ben, come on. You betrayed us at the this first Just percentage-wise, I think. Yeah, percentage-wise, okay, film okay, for film. Okay. I mean, Ben, how many kind of clangers have we already watched? And this is the good yeah. stuff, all right? We're... <laughs> you know, there are some rough patches for Disney. I feel like Ghibli. It's probably not all banger after banger, but the hit rate is higher, I think. The baton average is higher. Yeah, I'd, I'd say overall, you know, they, they have the benefits of only existing for you know, 35 years at this point and only really having a handful of filmmakers, so there is a continuity throughout, but there is a run. There aren't many studios where you can say that they have you know, 10-plus films that could all be top tier. Um, even someone, you know, maybe Disney does have that, but they do have 70, 80 years worth of films to pull from. I mean, I guess we're already talking about these films, the films of Studio Ghibli, legendary Japanese animation house. But I guess for people who maybe don't know, I'm not sure if everyone on this podcast will will know about Studio Ghibli. How would you describe the films of Ghibli? How would you introduce, especially Michael, as you did so for Jake back in the day, how would you sum up Studio Ghibli? I'm so glad that you have to answer that, considering we we wrote like 50,000 words on trying to answer that question. And now just do it as a snippet, Michael, just in one sentence. Yeah, just, you know, one sentence, a short paragraph. That's easy to do. I'll take it literally to begin with, and Studio Ghibli is a Japanese animation studio founded in the mid-80s by two veterans of Japanese animation, Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahata, and their goal was to produce original theatrical animation, which at the time was not necessarily what the Japanese animation um, industry was known for, very much about franchises, long-running series, TV animation. They wanted feature animation. And they very quickly, even though they'd worked together for many years, went on their own creative journeys over the 20, 30 years following. Hayao Miyazaki made you know a series of what some would call the greatest animated films of all time, like My Neighbor Totoro, Kiki's Delivery Service, Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away. That film in particular is the one that broke him internationally, won the Golden Bear, won an Oscar in 2001, 2002 as well. And I suppose his vibe is 
simultaneously in very complex ruminations on what it is to be a human being on the planet, you know, communing with ecology and nature, our place in the world, but also bringing in a lot of what people would call Ghibli vibes. He has a wonderful eye <laughs> for the magic in the everyday and make, turning everyday things into magical, wonderful things. So his films often have elements of fantasy in them, but often the most magical moments in his films are waiting at the bus stop in the rain and a for big forest troll wanders up next to you and is completely blown away by the sound of raindrops falling on an umbrella. Things like that. Meanwhile, Issa Takahata is off on his own journey where he's almost working in this sphere where he's a great literary, journalistic filmmaker making very serious films for more adult audiences like Grave of the Fireflies only yesterday, pushing the medium in directions that are very expensive and unprofitable, while Hayao Miyazaki at the same time is breaking box office records in Japan. Um, he's there just delivering a couple of expensive bombs, but in, in the meantime, creating incredibly beautiful animation. So this very fascinating studio, and this is why we had such fun delving into them, because the personalities are so strong. I'm sure you guys have experienced that as well, where once you start talking about these films side by side, the personalities are what's fascinating and the various journeys throughout them as well. Definitely. I think the idea of seeing something as like, oh, homogenous studio output, and then actually going, oh no, these are very specific films made by specific directors with perspectives and certain performers coming back in a really interesting way. That was beautifully summed up, Michael. So Jake, from your perspective, tell us a bit about your journey with Ghibli and, and your experiences watching through all these films for the first time. Oh, it's been an incredible adventure. One of the one of the best I've ever gone on. And it's been extremely well curated. Sam, you're a teacher. You can respect a well-crafted module. <laughs> can indeed. Yeah, it's all about flow. You can't just be chronological about things sometimes. You've got to, got to hook people in, get them excited. Uh, so in a way, Michael was the least expensive uh, film class I ever took. It's been brilliant, really. It saved me so much money. But So he, he grabbed me straight away with um, Spirited Away and some of the big hitters in our first series where we watched Princess Mononoke and My Neighbor Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies. And then along the way, we've kind of gone on that amazing journey where he's, he's gone and told me about these people that I don't really know anything about. I kind of had a rough idea of Miyazaki's films. I think even in the West, Spirited Away and Howl's Moving Castle penetrated the cultural consciousness enough that we have an idea of what they are even before we see them. But Takahata films less so. And I mean, even less so a Yashifumi Kondo film. So although learning about the Miyazaki films and getting to know these things that have had a huge cultural impact and financial impact, it's those smaller ones that have been the most rewarding for me. I've count Takata amongst some of my favorite filmmakers. Whisper of the Heart is such a beautiful work. And these are things that I never would have known about, heard about, um, let alone studied in great detail and rewatched and rewatched. And so for me, it's just, yeah, it's just been such a, a valuable artistic exploration and has been profoundly impactful to me and kind of how I go about my life, I suppose. Amazing. I mean, the podcast has been going for a few years now and there are, what, 25 odd Ghibli movies-ish? But you've done various other series since then. So what can you tell me about what you guys have been up to in the sort of post-Ghibli years of the podcast? Well, yeah, so when we had that first chat about doing Ghibli and we had 24-ish, as, as it said Ben, films in that first list, we thought that'll keep us busy for a long time, right? Because we envisioned it as being in these short sprints miniseries with breaks in between. Um, and then we kind of almost got to the end of that and said, where do we go next? And we then said, okay, wouldn't it be a dream if we could cap off that journey by having an actual physical journey of going out to Tokyo 
and visiting the Ghibli Museum out there. They have a museum that is almost a tribute to the studio, but also to the art of animation as a whole. Go to Tokyo, visit some locations, interview some filmmakers who've actually worked for Ghibli. And then we did that in November 2019. Then we thought, where could we go next? And I suppose as we went along this journey with Ghibli, as Jake said, there are a few films that have sort of punctured the western film fans sphere of influence so they may have heard of spirited away princess Mononoke, but they might want to go deeper and when we did the podcast we realized what set ghibli apart within a lot of japanese animation is that central narrative of these filmmakers going on their creative journeys creating a body of work that would come over to the west maybe have festival runs be treated as just as much family films as they are art house or world cinema films so when we then spread out and said what other filmmakers could we look at we went along that route because of course we could do disney if there wasn't a really good disney podcast that was going through (laughs) all their films or pixar but then these are companies that you know you really would want an academic to tell you about the history behind disney believe you me uh and we're very fortunate that sam is that person to do that (laughs) but uh so we we end up looking at filmmakers or studios that seem to have a similar spirit or a similar story or a similar unified worldview so the two other miniseries we've done so far were one on Satoshi Kon, a filmmaker who didn't miss ever. You know, he 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 directed only a handful of features and created one very short TV series in Japan. Died very young, very sadly, but they're all beautiful, brilliant, innovative in their own ways. Likewise, we did Cartoon Saloon, who are the Irish studio, who I think share a lot of thematic influences and inspiration with Ghibli, but again are corralling all of those creative impulses to tell quite a unified look at Ireland and Irish folklore and uh, presenting that to a world stage using animation. So yeah, we we sort of spilled out in all these directions um, with Ghibli at the heart, but also kind of keeping that theme as we spread our wings. Part of the reason this podcast has ended up happening now is because you guys have written a book. You have written Ghibliotech, the book, yeah, tell us about the book. That's super exciting. It's out now. Yeah, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I know. I feel like I'm the only person on this podcast who hasn't written a book. Sam's written about Toy Story and Shrek. You guys have written about Ghibliotech. I may be developing a bit of a complex here. Oh, no. Don't worry about it. One's coming your <laughs> way, Ben. Um, I should actually mention that <laughs> I don't think even Michael knows this. And Sam, you will appreciate this. The first film book I ever bought was The Art of Shrek. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so much artistry involved. Was there a chapter on Smash Mouth? That's not the art of Shrek. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's well, no one drew All Star. Well, maybe they should have. I don't even have the art of Shrek. I mean, the, the original it? art of Shrek. I don't know what got into me. I was like, what, like twelve, and uh, like spent my pocket money on a bloody coffee table book about Shrek. What a twelve-year-old. But like year reading old about facts. the animation about it and. Um, uh, so, yeah, I suppose going back to my first kind of flirtations with film books, it's been about animation and who knew it, we would arrive here. But yeah, Ghibli Tech the Book, it's, uh, it's a guide to all of the feature films of Studio Ghibli. We approached it in the same way that you approached the podcast in that Michael's job in the podcast is to be the educator. He provides the history and the context of all the films. And then I take on the review. So each chapter is almost divided down the middle like that. I would say that Michael had the easy job because he already had all the prep done because he could just look at the show notes for all of our episodes and remember what he said at the time. Whereas I've actually got to have some original thoughts. (laughs) But uh, we got there in the end. 
it was funny because I suppose when lockdown first happened, everyone joked about this is it. This is the time where I finally write that book I've been meaning to write or I'm going to do that thing I've been meaning to do. And, you know, we actually did it, which is nice. Amazing. And, and Michael, what was your experience? Like, come on, tell us your side. If Jake's like, oh, Michael, I've done all the work already. I had to do all the hard graft. What was your side of it? Yeah, I, I pretended that I spent all that time writing. I just, just copy paste job, basically. And I slept <laughs> for four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was really fascinating, actually. So we have quite a, you know, similar to you guys, we have quite a sort of structure for every episode. And sometimes there'd be so much that I'd have to leave out in my 10, 12 minute section where I talk about the context behind the films. So it was really fun to go back and hit the books. But also in the space of the three years where we've been making the podcast, new books on Ghibli and specifically Miyazaki have come out on, on shelves. So it was really interesting to just expand and get new sources of information not least like really fascinating that um one guy steve alpert who's really we might talk about him later in fact really key to how princess mononoke and spirited away got their western distribution he published his memoir in english so for the stuff that i like talking about which is all that behind the scenes stuff and all the crazy characters and outsized personalities that stuff was really invaluable but also really fun to basically write like a mini contextual program note type essay about every film you know knowing that jake's doing the review and talking about the actual film as we see it and just knowing that that's been handled very capably by someone who i'm, who I'm sure watched the films many times before he did so meant that that freed me up to just talk about all of that production background and context and weave that story through all of the chapters so it can be read individually or across the whole thing and it's been quite fun seeing like the couple of responses we've had so far where they're like oh this is the story of how Ghibli has such a big you know figurehead in Miyazaki and the big struggle is they never were able to replace him with anything else or he never found a protege who could replace him and it's like oh that's really interesting that those threads do come through as we wrote wrote it all side by side because when you do podcasts it's very easy to just be like record the podcast edit it put it out but they're individual things but a book is you know really means you can develop that narrative on that as you guys know when you record a podcast you're locked into what you said you, you said it now and it's out in the world and so the book was a great opportunity for me to actually because when we first recorded the podcast it was me reacting having basically watched the film for the first time the night before and so the book was an opportunity to go back rewatch and rewatch, and actually really kind of think about what i thought about the films um not just that kind of first take reaction that the podcast was built around and i'm really glad i did because some of them i did a pretty strong turn on like princess mononoke <laughs> right i mean maybe i'll have to do that at some point sam because maybe on a second viewing pinocchio won't be the absolute freak show that i remember and i'll have some kind of affection for it once you're prepared once you, you go in with the full knowledge of what's about to take place, then you can take it on the chin a bit. Just very quickly, Jake, what was your turnaround on, on Mononoke? It turns out it's good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I said it was good at the first time. I was just a bit confused by it, and I thought it was messy, and I thought it was convoluted, and I thought it was confusing. But actually, I think that's very much intentional because... Uh, Miyazaki uh, doesn't vibe with kind of binary characters that are villains or heroes all the time. And I think that mess of war uh, that Princess Mononoke kind of turns into where all things are a bit unclear is very much intentional to show you the, all of those grey areas 
and the mess that violence can create amongst people. Okay, so there's plenty of stuff along those lines that we're going to delve into further in the show, but for the next 45 minutes or so, we're going to be crossing the streams to talk about both the Walt Disney Animation Studio and Studio Ghibli together, these two very distinct dominant animation houses from two sides of the world behind so many beloved movies and with a legacy that I think we're going to find out is in some ways fairly intertwined. So I want to start whenever we have a guest on the podcast by asking you guys the usual questions. So first up, what are your favourite movies from Disney? What are the Disney films that you grew up on? So I have to confess that I'm not a big Disney person. Ben, I'm maybe Get in a out. similar wheelhouse to you. Where, like you at really, the start you're of the coming pop- in here talking to... No, come back, come back. <laughs> uh, yeah, like in the, I appreciate the cultural legacy of them and know them maybe more for the cultural impact than the narratives within. But then, like most children born in the 90s, I had a load of VHSs of a lot of them. But the one that I would always go back to was Robin Hood. Popular answer. Yeah, by far and away my favourite. And not just because he's a bit sexy for a fox. (laughs) Partly because of that. He's a handsome fox. He's literally a fox. But I loved it. And as I regularly see on reddit about disney reusing animation cells across them i like that robin hood was kind of a bit of a job done in the back room as well compared to the other ones and i think it's got the catchiest songs and i think it's one film that i loved recreating or like imagine recreating particularly there's a sequence that's like american football or rugby running through the woods um which i absolutely loved and i love playing that with my brother in the garden that's definitely the one that I'd go back to the most, probably followed by The Jungle Book. I'm really looking forward to talking about Robin Hood with Ben in a couple of episodes' time because so many people put that as like their top movie, and it's not for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, without spoiling too much for that episode, I suppose, it's like a really disproportionate number of people of our age in particular put that as one of their top movies and it's odd (laughs) yeah maybe in the music is something that i latched onto the music feels really different it's quite wistful um particularly the all the the roosters songs yeah and it sounded a lot different to everything there's not a lot of bombast to it it's uh kind of a bit hokey and a bit diy and i like that and as we've spoken about so many times on the podcast the Disney Vault system, which meant certain VHSs were available at certain times. I think that's one a lot of people our age had because it was available, and the ones that you see when you're a kid, you do inevitably latch onto. What What was that for you, Michael? What are the Disney films that you grew up on, or did you grow up on on Ghibli? Is that is that a thing that was possible? I popped out of the womb and I was watching French comedies <laughs> and Japanese animation. No, so first of all, very flattered that we were talking about our age i'm older than the three of you uh but that meant that i had a front row seat to the disney renaissance i don't remember seeing all these films but i have a very strong memory of having the sticker book for oliver and company i have a very strong memory of having the flounder happy meal toy like a squirty squeezy guy i do remember aladdin and lion king etc but then as, I think as you've discussed before with some of your guests like Clarice, where you sort of have that maybe eight year period where you see all the all of the Disney movies and then you're a bit too old. I think Pocahontas might be the last one for me. And so I miss out on some of the cult gems for people who are slightly younger than me. 
So I one day will, I'm sure, see Lilo and Stitch. But I think actually Robin Hood is the one. So I, I did have a lot of VHSs. <laughs> He's just such a sexy fox. He just can't get around it. Absolutely. And it's come back into view for me because of the songs. It's also interesting. We do have Disney Plus now. And our th- nearly three-year-old son has been dipping into some Disney films and the older ones. The difficulty is that he's massively into Cats. And Aristocats is the one from that era which has aged the worst because of it's just outright... Where it's, just, it's a great film for like 40, 50 minutes and then it just goes absolutely batshit racist for like a chorus and a verse of one song. I'm sorry that I swore. <laughs> Well, we'll be touching on that very soon, won't we, Ben? We will, we will. That is our next regular episode of the podcast. So, yeah, more Aristocats chat coming. Well, uh, I mean, it's appropriate soon. that the, the Ghibli episode should be the cat episode crossover as well. <laughs> I know a lot of cats in Ghibli. You've got, obviously, Cat Bus. You've got The Cat Returns, which crosses over with Whisper of the Heart. Whisper of the, the Heart, indeed. Statues. So I've, I've shown him a lot of those bits as excerpts from the films. I've, unlike some of our friends and colleagues who are very much like they've, they've got their syllabus laid out for their kids, like when they're six, they're going to sit down and watch A New Hope with me and blah, 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 Raiders of the Lost Ark and whatever. But um, I'm happy to just let him discover films on his own speed, really, to save me any disappointment <laughs> more than anything. <laughs> on that front, then, this is the opinion I really want. Clearly, this episode is a war between Disney and Ghibli. From the perspective of your three-year-old son, does he prefer Ghibli movies or Disney movies at this stage? Fight, fight, fight. Ooh, okay. Right. That's a really good point. I think probably Aristocats has the edge. I think this is the sad thing, uh, although maybe not. Maybe this is the intended audience for this franchise, and I'll, it's an adjunct to Disney. He's into cars a lot. Oh, yeah. So, of course, right. Cars wins Massive out. Massive gearhead is Ivo. He loves it. <laughs> yeah, he loves the Fast and Furious movies. And <laughs> g- g- Hey, you think you're kidding, but he puts me to shame recognising makes of cars. We just go for a walk. <laughs> I don't know how to drive. I've <laughs> Not interesting cars at all, but he can pick them out. So Cars has the, has the edge for him. How soon is too soon for Mad Max Fury Road? <laughs> Ooh, that would be interesting. He'll... That's going to blow his mind one day. He loves performing stunts on his bike, so I think he'll love I it. think that would work for a kid. I mean, it's practically a silent film, so I think you could give that to, you know, yeah, a, a very visual. Old. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so those are Disney films that you guys grew up on. Which are the ones now, which recent Disney movies that you've come to as an adult? We've discussed this many times on the podcast. You have that time when you're a kid and you love Disney stuff and then you're a bit old and a bit cool for it. And then it all kind of comes back around. So what are your favourite Disney movies now? Oh, gosh. I can't say I go back to them that much. If It's more modern day stuff than classic stuff. A lot of the time my interaction with older films is through the music. So I listen to soundtracks all day long and... I think I probably more encounter Disney films like that. But in terms of watching them, most recently, I'd probably make Zootopia a highlight. Oh, Zootopia is an absolute banger. So good. Yeah, I, th- I think that sort of run they've had recently of their CG animated films has put Pixar to shame, really. So in our house, Moana is on all the time. It's, it's my partner's favourite recent animated film. Can I be a real sort of, you know, put my beret on and sort of you know, Please. say... By all means. It doesn't count, but it's in the list on Wikipedia is because, you know, a touchstone movie co-produced by Disney. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is my secret favourite Disney movie because of course it has extended tribute to, you know, early characters not of course the feature characters, but um, key cameos from Donald and Mickey in there. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Moana Michael, just going back to what I was saying about music I just remembered that uh, a few weeks ago I drove to a stag do 
uh, and just because I'm such a lad and I was just with so many <laughs> legends in the car, we, we genuinely blasted the Moana soundtrack on the way Come on, there. Come lads, Moana, make way, well, make Me way. and Ben were doing your welcome on karaoke like a week ago as well. We so, <laughs> Welcome to the ultra-masculine podcast for the bros. <laughs> this is what being 30 is all about, guys. <laughs> Uh, guys, we've been talking enough and we bloody talk about Ghibli all the time. So why can't we hand that over to you for a change? Uh, it would be lovely to get you to talk about Ghibli. Ben, I'll go to you first. I'm sure you didn't encounter a Studio Ghibli film because your friend walked across your desk and forced you to watch it. <laughs> but I'm sure you must have encountered it at a, a more formative age. I think I was maybe at university when I first actually watched a Ghibli film. I remember, I mean, I was buying film magazines from when I was pretty young, maybe like 12, 13. And I think, what was it, 2004 that Spirited Away came out? I just remember seeing the imagery in the magazines and it looking so distinct from anything that I'd really seen before. Although, well, obviously it looks like anime and I'd grown up in the Pokemon era. I'd seen bits of like mainstream kids breakfast anime stuff, but I'd never seen anything that looked like that. It was many years later that I actually saw the film. And part of my journey towards Ghibli was that I watched Spirited Away and didn't really get it. Like, I think one of the things that's really interesting about Ghibli is that for us who mostly are raised on Disney movies, the rhythms and the ideas and the whole, like, tone of Ghibli is completely different. Everything about it feels pretty distinct, and and one of the films where I think that comes across strongest is In Spirited Away. I'm always surprised that that is, like, the crossover film, because on the one hand, I get it, because it is so Japanese. It's so culturally specifically Japanese with the bathhouse and the spirits and the big dragon and all of that stuff. It's so distinct to a lot of the things that we grew up on. At the same time, I think it's quite inaccessible. It's even now when I've gone back and revisited it, there's a lot that I admire about Spirited Away, but it's not my favourite Ghibli movie by any means. And so many of the ones that I saw later like clicked with me in a much more immediate and much kind of deeper level. So for me, I think the one I watched after that was Ponyo, which I, God, I love Ponyo so much. I know people talk about that as maybe like lesser Miyazaki. I would refute that on every claim. I don't know, Totoro is so dominant and I love Totoro so much, but I think people talk about Ponyo as being sub-Totoro and I, I don't think that's the case. I think it's got some really beautiful stuff in there. That opening sequence going up through the seabed, through the sea with all the creatures and stuff is one of my favourite pieces of animation. Uh, so I love that. But the one that really blew my mind was a few years ago in my local charity shop. I picked up a DVD of Princess Mononoke and that is, to this day, my favourite Ghibli movie. It is incredible. It feels like rich, deep fantasy on the level of something like Lord of the Rings that at the same time as with Spirited Away is so deeply, culturally, specifically Japanese in a way that is just fascinating and something that I think we're going to talk about in the rest of this episode is that kind of push and pull between... A lot of Disney stuff is quite binary, good and evil, Whereas I think a lot of Ghibli stuff finds a lot of grey area in the middle and it's all about harmony and balance rather than one side overcoming the other. And that comes across a lot in Mononoke. So that is the one that really blew it open from there for me. And then I watched a bunch of the other ones. I have to say, there's still quite a few Takahata films that I haven't seen, but I watched 
Grave of the Fireflies once and never again, like most people <laughs> do, because it is completely harrowing. It's incredible, but it's heartbreaking. But I love Whisper of the Heart. I really love The Wind Rises. I think The Wind Rises is one of the best films I've ever seen. It's peak Miyazaki. It's everything you love about Miyazaki in one film is planes, it's flight, it's dreams. It has just gorgeous dream sequences that I, I love so much. So that is a favourite for me. But anyway, I've waffled far too long. Sam, what are your thoughts on Ghibli? Uh, I think my first Ghibli, well, it definitely was Spirited Away as well, which I think is quite standard. I first encountered it staying up late one night to watch Channel 4's 100 Greatest Cartoons Countdown in 2005. So I was about 12. And I used to, Ooh, I, what era was that? Was that still Graham Norton? It was either, I think it might have been Jimmy Carr. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think it might have been Jimmy Carr. And Just was... post-golden era of the top 100s, you know. <laughs> I was obsessed with those shows. Yeah, and I oh did God, watch yeah. all of them. Kids TV show one is another classic, just to introduce you to mad things from, from like a previous era from before you were born. And Spirited Away was top ten. It was like very high up and I'd never heard of it. It was, I don't know, sandwiched probably between Family Guy and South Park or something. It was another great list overall. But I was like, oh my god, what is this thing? This is different. I knew anime because I knew like Pokemon and Dragon Ball Z and the stuff that was on regular kids TV. But I hadn't really explored the world of because I was twelve. I hadn't really explored the world of uh, of Japanese animated features. Elsewhere on that list was um, the pornographic tentacle movie Legend of the Overthing which I was also very fascinated by at the age of 12 but did not seek out until uh, quite a long time later you were still focusing on the foxes at that point you were <laughs> <laughs> so Spirited Away I think it was a little bit later on we actually watched it where like a bunch of a bunch of pals at like a sleepover a bunch of boys were like oh I've got this Spirited Away movie and we were just kind of a little bit baffled by it because it's it's a lot longer than standard western animated features which normally cap out at 90 minutes how long Spirited Away it's like it's two hours plus right it's close to two hours yeah it's shorter than you think it's, okay, it's, it's well, like 111 minutes. Well, yeah. that's because it just ends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Because if it feels kind of long and, and it's obviously very episodic and winding and no standard good and evil villain characters or whatever and we were just kind of a little bit baffled. Um, and I didn't come back to them until a good few years later when I started really getting into animation generally and stocking up on everything that I possibly could. These days... I'm more of a Takahata guy than a Miyazaki guy generally and I think that's because even though kind of like we're saying with Ghibli in general Miyazaki has like so many movies and they're all of a very high standard the Takahata stuff is just more unique like I mean you guys have talked about this on your podcast plenty and in the book everything stands out so my Ghibli film like my number one with a bullet Ghibli film is Princess Kaguya because it just looks like no other animated feature at least that's ever been made and it's like when you watch as many animated films as i do which is about three a week on average you know and that's still kind of plowing through as many as i can it becomes almost like i'm desperate for that next hit because so many of them look so similar whenever i see something that is just like nothing i've ever seen before which happens quite regularly like once a month maybe i see something that's like whoa what is that that is crazy you just kind of keep looking for that next hit and your standard films don't satisfy you anymore. So Kaguya is an example of that. It's like 
what it what is that that is amazing it just looks like nothing else that's why it's my top i always introduce you as animation academic sam summers i'm gonna have to start introducing you as animation addict dr <laughs> sam summers uh, do we need to step in is this an intervention now <laughs> it is i mean if you look at my shelves full of them and if you ask my girlfriend how concerned she is about the habit she would probably describe it as an addiction as well <laughs> yeah so sam we've all written letters and we're going to read them out to you now <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned Takata and how much the, not failures, but the ones that don't necessarily work altogether. They're something that fascinates me so much. And arguably that makes some director's narratives much more interesting. Like someone like Paul Thomas Anderson is arguably not that interesting because he's just makes hit after hit after hit after hit. But someone like a Robert Altman, where you can look at something and just be like, Popeye, what? What was that? Oh, Do not get on? me started on Robert Altman's Popeye because that will, I will be here all day talking about that movie. But it, it, that's what I mean. Like you love the career because of that, and you, like that this guy can make this and that. That this guy can make Grave of the Fireflies, and he can make a film about raccoons with magical testicles. I love it. <laughs> Little shout out to Pompoko there. Yeah, that's the testicle movie. That's yeah. the one about the Tanukis who have taken the coronavirus vaccine and their <laughs> testicles have swollen to an immense size. <laughs> oh, I don't know when this episode is going out, but that is a very topical reference for this week's news. <laughs> Hello, Nicki Minaj. Sorry, Michael, what were you saying? Well, no, I think it's also really, that's what's so fascinating about Ghibli is that not only that they have, as, as Jake said, this Takata guy, Sam, that you're responding to, he makes these big swing films that don't always you know connect with an audience and he's trying things and experimenting at the same time as just down the corridor, his, you know, long-term best mate slash you know a rival is just time and again creating these great movies that would charm generations of japanese kids and bring in billions of dollars worth of merchandising so you have something like princess Mononoke, which at the time was the highest grossing film in japanese history and then literally like two years later they'd be releasing my neighbors the yamadas which they try to market to the audience that love Princess Mononoke, but that's a film that is adapted from a newspaper comic strip and is very much looks like a newspaper comic strip and is structured like multiple sketches in a row, it's kind of plays like a feature length Japanese Simpsons almost. Hey kids, you loved The Lord of the Rings. Now come and see Garfield the movie. I mean, I, mean, I wouldn't go so as, you know, they never made a Garfield the movie. That wasn't a diss. But, but I, I find that really fascinating. I'm always really interested in creative units that can have such yin yang figures in and in the book i shoehorn in a reference to the beatles in the sense that you know miyazaki is paul mccartney just pumping out big melodies for the rest of his career and takat is more like john lennon or george harrison who's much more interested in exploring more iconoclastic directions Uh, it's just a fascinating company on that note then, if we're talking about the yin and yang, not just of, of Miyazaki and Takahata, let's talk about the yin and yang of Disney and Ghibli. I don't know who wants to jump in first, but what would we say are the differences between Ghibli and Disney? As I said, when I came to Spirited Away, it stood out to me because it's so different in so many ways. Have at it, people. Well, just to follow up on what I've just been saying, something that stood out to me during that conversation is like, Disney never had a Takahata. Maybe some Takahatas worked at Disney, but they never had the kind of creative control that he did. Like, the Disney movies are so much more homogenous if you look at what Studio Ghibli make. It's like, what if every couple of years, what if in between Peter Pan's and Lady and the Tramps, 
every couple of years there was a Three Caballeros. Every couple of years there was a Fantasia, you know? But that stuff kind of got nipped in the bud fairly early on, those real daring experiments. And it's like, why why couldn't we have had someone like Takahata at Disney who was just quietly in the background pumping out these mad experiments while we're still putting out the Miyazaki-style kind of family-friendly blockbusters? Well, I also think that just speaks to how the two companies were founded on very different you know, goals and ideal, ideals and ambitions. That, you know, Disney was a visionary to create an empire, to expand into all these different directions and in, in the end set the ball rolling that will subsume the entirety of our Western pop culture. Whereas Miyazaki and Takahata are two very reluctant geniuses. They have this guy, their long-serving, long-suffering producer, Toshio Suzuki, who's the president of the company for a run but produces almost all their films. And often he has to keep the lights on and convince them to make their next film and oh yeah it's another masterpiece so it's just two very one is very much an engine for an industry disney and ghibli until you know the early 90s they didn't even, you know they had totoro on their hands and it wasn't until the early 90s that they thought oh this guy could be a mascot this guy could be merchandising opportunity and it wasn't until much later as well that they had the ambition to grow in the way that they did and they're still now a relatively well not now let's look to when they're at their peak in the 2000s still a relatively small operation in one campus in in tokyo and that that is a difference michael because disney had never commercialized any of their properties <laughs> yeah they just made the films and that's it they just let them lie and and people find them great you know but so that's that's kind of i guess outside of the films themselves what about inside what about in the storytelling in the in the rhythms of the films yeah well mike was sick of me talking about this now <laughs> but that word story i find fascinating because we mentioned spirited away and i think like maybe there is a really good age to watch it where like if you're young enough, you're not really that bothered about maybe satisfaction of a story and you can get away with just the thrill of it. But maybe then you have an age where you can recognise when something doesn't quite click and you think that's all a bit odd. Perhaps, Sam, that's when you watched it and you think like this is thrilling in parts, but I'm not really what is my reward for getting through it. And then you hit an age where you're back to your you're so used to story structure and the 22 rules of Pixar's storybook and um, save the cat and all of that, uh, that you can then watch Spirit Away and think, oh, this is so exciting that it's not doing that things. And you go full circle on it. And I think that is something that I find so exciting about these films like Yamada's parts of it is a brilliant film, but it's way too long. And some of those sections don't work. And the structure of the whole thing is a bit of a mess, but I love it for being that mess. And a lot of those, a lot of Ghibli films don't follow the structure that we expect that maybe a company like Disney set out once they figured out their formula after those first few years. You know, on that note, the Disney film, at least so far that we've covered, that comes closest to a, a Miyazaki film like Totoro is our least favourite so far, The Sword and the Stone. That is kind of very loose and episodic and laid back and low stakes and ends incredibly abruptly and doesn't really feel like it was kind of scripted with any kind of rules or goal in mind. And we did not like it. And yet it's the similar, it's a similar kind of impulse that were praised in movies like My Neighbor Totoro. I mean, in many other aspects, My Neighbor Totoro is far superior to The Sword and the Stone. But yeah, it's interesting that when, when Disney do something that, breaks their narrative formula that they've established so well we kind of think oh wow that's a bit of an aberration how did that slip through but with Ghibli when it becomes part of the course to experiment more narratively it's more we see it as being more admirable it's so intriguing as well that they're often drawing from very similar storytelling traditions to the point where you know Ponyo one of your favorites Ben is 
very much a Little Mermaid story. And you've got that to come in a couple of years, guys, Little Mermaid. And Miyazaki, you talk about the Japanese specificity of their of, of his worldview, but both Takata and Miyazaki were big European fans of European literature, fairy tales, fantasy, French literature, French animation. So they're drawing from similar wells of inspiration to a lot of Disney, but Disney had their house style where it's bring in songs and dance and these beautiful sequences that can very much play like feature-length versions of what were the shorts back in the day, whereas Miyazaki's... Jake, you mentioned the strange storytelling structure of films like Spirited Away or Totoro. That's often because Miyazaki is a genius just let run wild. And often he starts making a film that's meant to be a 45-minute long straight-to-VHS feature. And it turns into an 88-minute long thing and it's My Neighbor Totoro and it has to go out in the cinema. Or Spirited Away is a film where they started with a release date in mind. And then the release date was looming and they were only two thirds of the way through the film and they threw out the back third of the film and just put an ending on it. So that's the sort of aspect of the Ghibli stuff where you talk to people who work in Western animation now and they're just baffled that Ghibli have that freedom to follow the inspiration, pack a film full of characters and incidents without the end goal being in mind. So they actually do this thing where once they actually start key animation, the storyboarding and script of only the first third of the film is in place and then they have a sprint and then he'll do the next bit and then he'll do the next bit so if you watch any of the documentaries about films like the wind rises he's not figured out what the ending is and they're already animating which you talk to people at disney and pixar and they're just they start sweating when you say things like that yeah i think um to pick up on a couple of things first up that's something I find really interesting about Ghibli is, as we were saying, the culturally specific Japanese-ness of it, but at the same time, lots of their stuff, especially more recently, are like adaptations of British or Welsh literature. Another one of my favourites, Porco Rosso, which is like an Italian World War II adventure, serial adventure, kind of drawing from similar stuff in a more kind of plainy way, Indiana Jones is playing on those kind of World War II serials and, and that kind of thing. So I think there's a lot of crossover in terms of inspiration, but it's in the presentation of those stories that, that the differences come, especially that kind of more dubious morality and the storytelling rhythms. I think that's what kind of broke my brain a bit with spirited away right in that it starts from this place of like jihiro's parents have been turned into pigs and she now has to work at this bathhouse where all the spirits come in order to kind of well maybe earn her freedom or she has to find a way to escape from that right and then this spirit comes who's eaten everything from the river and uh, it seems to be this sort of antagonistic situation but actually that's all about finding balance because it's about them appeasing the spirit and unclogging the spirit from all the human crap that it's consumed and then it goes on its way and the spirit is fine it's not a villain and then in the second half of the film it kind of meanders around and they're like let's go on a train for five minutes through the middle of the ocean and it's beautiful it's gorgeous but as you're watching it you're just like i don't know what leads from one thing to the other and then the plot just kind of resolves itself but it, it's fascinating and i do think those things are things that kind of western audiences love about spirited away how how different the feeling of the story is as well as the visuals and the world that it's set in but even though Ghibli and Disney come from very different places and often do very different things, their paths have crossed in some fairly significant ways over the year, including, well, Disney released a lot of Ghibli's films in the US. So this this is definitely my area of, of interest. I love reading about this because it just there could be a really good 
um, dramatization of this, just with all of the characters involved. So I mentioned Toshio Suzuki earlier. Uh, he's the producer behind the films. I get the sense that Miyazaki and Takahata would be fine if no, no kids ever watched their films and they just got to make it. That's the more important thing. But Toshio Suzuki was saying, come on, guys, we should think a bit bigger. And he hired in the mid-90s a chap called Steve Alpert, and he said that your job is to sell Ghibli to the world. And Suzuki loves to tell a story, and there are so, so many of the anecdotes that you've probably heard about behind the scenes at Ghibli has probably been spun by him, often with him as the hero. But they're so compelling. And the one of the best ones is Walt Disney Japan wanted to get the home entertainment rights for Ghibli's films. And Suzuki said, yeah, you can have them as long as Walt Disney US will release the next Miyazaki movie. And this is the early mid-90s where think about Miyazaki's previous three movies, Porco Rosso, Kiki's Literary Service, My Neighbor Totoro, you're thinking, oh, these are great family films, great crossover films, everyone would love this. But little does Disney know that uh, that the next film is Princess Mononoke, as you said, Ben, very violent, very complex. Mm -hmm. Limbs being chopped off. In the first five minutes. ancient boar gods. It's a whole thing. So they get Disney to uh, to sign that deal. They cut together a promo of Mononoke where there's a scene where um, Ashitaka, the prince, is kind of convalescing in the middle of the forest glade and there's this bit where she sort of masticates some food and spits it into his mouth as he's as he's getting better and they recut that into the promo so it looked like there was a princess kissing a prince shot for Disney and they're like oh rubbing the hands <laughs> wonderful there's this romantic and adventurous movie on our way but of course when they finally see the full film it's far too violent for Disney to release so they bounce it down to Miramax to have a bit more of an art house adult friendly release but if anyone you know Sam if you're very interested in reading into the history between Ghibli and Disney. Steve Alpert's book is really fascinating, just on the level of how these two companies operate with one another, a Japanese business and an American business, that the sort of slickness of America and the very much sort of rigid hierarchy of Japan coming against each other. When they release Kiki's delivery service and start adding in all sorts of bells and whistles in the dub version, even though Ghibli have in their contracts, they need to be released unchanged. And that, of course, gives rise to one of the best Ghibli stories, which is when they hear that Harvey Weinstein at Miramax is going to release Mononoke. And at that stage, Weinstein was known as Harvey Scissorhands and he would take films, recut them for maximising their profit margins and awards potential. They have the meeting in the States, top brass at Miramax. There's a box that opens up and it's got a samurai sword inside with the letter saying, no cuts. Or the other version is Suzuki's there himself and he hands the samurai sword over in perfect English, shouts, no cuts, echoing around the room. Either way, I love that story. But that's just one of a few. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting as well that I think there is a lot of crossover between the studios these days. Like in the US, a lot of Ghibli films came out via Disney. Disney, I think, is a pretty big deal in Japan these days, or that's a very important market for them. They've got that Tokyo Disneyland, which you guys have been to. I think as well that there is quite a lot of Ghibli-esque storytelling in especially the very recent spate of Disney movies. To me, Moana, the climax of Moana, is that classic non-binary morality where it's like, return the heart of Tefiti, that the sort of what you think is the villain is actually the mountain god from the start, and if you return the heart and restore balance, then nature can thrive. That feels massively Ghibli to me. Like Miyazaki's environmental stuff is is huge and you feel that in Mononoke and Spirited Away and Ponyo, all of that stuff. 
And you look at something like Frozen 2, Disney recently have gone into quite dense fantasy lore. Like, there is so much background stuff going on in Frozen 2 that's never really explained, and that kind of makes more emotional and thematic sense than logical sense, which to me feels, again, quite ghibli in terms of what Elsa is, one of the five forest spirits, and it's the harmony of all the different... I don't know, there's the forest shrouded in mist because of the bad thing that happened however long ago. I still don't really know how it works, but I think the feeling of that, yeah, feels much more like a Ghibli thing than a traditional Disney thing. And that bit in Zootopia where the fox has magical testicles as well. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine? That would be amazing. The foxes just keep getting sexier. They just can't stop. Um, it's, It's all spirits as well, isn't it? It's in these Disney films. It's all nature spirits and you have to respect the spirits in order to bring harmony between the human world and the natural world and that's in Frozen 2 and Noana and Raya and The Last Dragon as well and it's quite different to how they've treated nature in the past uh, in films like Bambi in which it's a lot more adversarial there's no resolution in Bambi between man and nature man is the villain man destroys the forest and then he buggers off to destroy different forests probably and fox and the hound and even dumbo are kind of similar in that way like these relationships between human and animals humans and nature never really get resolved and they're pushing more towards that kind of resolution more recently i think which seems a little bit ghibli-esque and i think we'll see more of this because the films are more accessible than ever they're going to be inspiring and influencing more people than ever because people can find them on netflix or hbo max and there are going to be a new generation of people that are going to be lifting stuff from Ghibli. You look at a film like Pixar's Luca, which is so much a love letter to Ghibli's works. Yeah, and I think really even today, you go and talk to any animators at Disney or Pixar, they grew up on Ghibli. It's really fascinating, guys, when you get to some of the films in the 80s and 90s, they bear Ghibli references and influences as well. Uh, Maybe we can come back and educate you on those. Yeah, I'd love that. (laughs) Oh, okay. As Jake alluded to, obviously all of the Disney films are on Disney+, Plus, but pretty much all of Ghibli these days is on Netflix. Grave of the Fireflies isn't on there because I think the rights are complicated on that one. But if you haven't seen these films and you're really interested in them, go to Netflix because loads of them are on there. Our time is very, very nearly up. But I have to ask, you guys went to Japan for the podcast. What is the Ghibli Museum like? That is one of my goals to go there someday. It's as good as they say it is, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, you should be as jealous as you are. Uh, It is... Michael said it's a celebration of not just Ghibli but animation as an art form and you just go there and you fall in love with the entire craft as well as all the films that you already know and love. Amazing, amazing. We're going to have to make this happen, Sam. I know we're hopefully going to go to Disneyland at some point, but maybe, screw it, we'll go to Japan as well. That's like an easy thing to do, isn't it? We'll just make it happen. But as much as I could talk about Ghibli and Disney and all of this stuff all day, this wraps us up for a very special episode of Ghibliversity. Sorry, Disney or Tech, oh, I don't know, whatever we're calling it, but you can get your fill of Ghibli movies, Satoshi Kon, Cartoon Saloon, and much more on the Ghibli or Tech podcasts, and be sure to pick up a copy of the Ghibli or Tech book, which you can find in all major and probably most independent bookshops as well, as well as all the usual online places. As for Disneyversity, the next thing you're going to hear from myself and Sam will be the official dawn of the Dark Age. Or at least the bangover, as the initial part of the next era is going to be called. As we get down with the hippest cats in Paris in 1970s, the Aristocats. Keep an eye out for us announcing when that episode is going to drop, but fear not because our podcast break is nearly over. In the meantime, it's goodbye from Jake. Bye. It's goodbye from Michael. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Sam. 
See you later. And finally, it is goodbye from me. I'm about to go and organise a big lads party where we're all going to get together, sing songs from Moana, and stick on Spirited Away. Yeah! Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs, and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram, and catch you for next week's class. Thank you.